we're going to make it through chapter 1, verse 1a, all right? Now, don't get scared as you look at the book of Nehemiah and you go, wow, this study could last a very, very, very long time, all right? We're going to speed it up next week and get all the way through verse 11 next week, but I really feel like it's necessary to give you a little background to the passage, so don't get scared. I'm going to warn you at the outset. You know, if there ever was a time to do a study of a book of the Bible that clearly describes the character of a true leader, I would say it is definitely now. Our culture, in fact, is fascinated, I don't know if you realize this, with the look of a leader. Just the very way that he looks. If you've been following the process of seeking a nominee for the Republican presidential ticket, then you know this is a true statement. I've actually seen news stories about Mitt Romney's hair, about his hair. And I remember one story in particular, they were comparing Mitt Romney's hair to Rick Perry's hair, the governor from Texas, saying who had the best hair. And I've seen stories about the portly stature of Newt Gingrich. I've seen stories about the smile and the beautiful teeth that President Obama has. And then I've seen other stories which say, this man probably will never be president because he doesn't look presidential. And I wonder to myself, whoever decided what a president should look like? But our country is in desperate need of leadership. Our state is in desperate need of leadership. Our city is in need of leadership. And I would say to you that while we as a church are so quick so many times to criticize our outside secular culture, I will tell you this, that churches all across America, all across the world, need leadership. But people need more than a good-looking person. I'm glad for that. People need more than a president who can simply sing a tune. We need more than a person who is of a certain stature or a person who has the ability to be able to use persuasive speech. I would submit to you that we need leaders who will lead with conviction. Leaders who love God. Yes, and I believe that's not true only in the church, but I believe that's true in our secular culture as well. Leaders that not only love God, but they really love and care about people. Leaders who believe that they are ordinary people, but they can be used in extraordinary ways by God to accomplish things for his glory rather than their own. Don't you crave that kind of leadership? I crave that kind of leadership, not only, as I said, in our secular culture, I crave that kind of leadership right here in a church. Enter Nehemiah. As one Bible teacher said, I love this, he said, you're about to meet the Abraham Lincoln of the Old Testament, a respected leader with a tender heart. You'll see his tears in the Oval Office as he weeps for people who are oppressed and vulnerable. You're about to meet the George Patton of the Old Testament, a rugged leader, intolerant of compromise, relentless in demanding perfection. You're about to meet the Winston Churchill of the Old Testament, a statesman tested and tried, resisting the enemies who seek to lure him away from the task, rising above the squabbling factions who would distract him. The writer went on to say, the tenderness of Lincoln, the fire of Patton, the savvy of Churchill, all found in the same man, and that man's name is Nehemiah, 
whose life we're going to look at over the next few months. We're going to spend the next uh, several months looking at his life and looking at his leadership of the people of God. But before we do, and this is why we're only going to make it through verse 1a, I want to give you a brief summary of the events that lead up to the story of Nehemiah. I recognize that there are a number of you that are part of our body that you are new in your faith or very immature in your faith. Maybe this is the first time where you've actually studied through the Bible since you've been at Northwest. I also recognize that there are some of you that have known Jesus for a long time and you are students of the word and we've got everything in between. But I didn't want to take it for granted that you would just simply assume and understand the context of Nehemiah and so I want to give you a brief history lesson. Most Bible scholars agree that a study of the book of Nehemiah without a study, at least a brief study of Jewish history, would be, for instance, like going to the 9-11 memorial in New York City, having no concept or no understanding of those events on September 11th of 2001. And so we want to dive right in with a study of Jewish history. Now, middle school, high school kids, stay with me, all right? This is going to be good for you to hear this as we set the stage for these next several weeks. Now, here's what you need to understand. that Jewish history actually begins with Abraham at approximately 2000 B.C. But it wouldn't be until about 1,000 years later that Israel would actually take on world significance as a nation under the leadership of, first of all, Saul, and then David, and then his son Solomon. And in the successive reign of these three kings, Israel would actually become a mighty nation. And they would be recognized as a significant major world power under the 40-year term, especially of King David. David, in fact, advanced the nation of Israel so remarkably that upon his death, David turned the throne over to his son Solomon. And if you know your Bible, you know that the last part of Solomon's life, he so compromised in his life that God judged him. We won't take the time, but if you want to, as you're sitting here listening, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, and that's when you see the downfall. Solomon turns his, his heart and his head from God. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 10, it says, And he had been commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. And then verse 11 says, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this, And you've not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I'll give it to your servant. When Solomon died, if you're a Bible student, you know that the nation was split into military ranks, and Israel became a divided kingdom. Ten tribes migrated to the north, and the southern tribes migrated toward the south and settled in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And during this time, the northern tribes were known as... Israel, and the southern tribes were known as Judah. Now, if you're a study of American history, you know that one of the lowest parts of our American history was the Civil War. And so it was with the North and the South split in Jewish history. They reached their low point not when other hostile nations came and attacked them from the outside, but when they began to attack each other from within. Let me stop just for a moment and say that I think that that is the greatest challenge even today of the body of Christ, of the local church. It's amazing to me how much time we spend talking about the attacks that come from the outside as if those should be unexpected. 
We ought to expect in our culture, in fact, even in our media this week, a big theme in our media was the attacks that are coming upon, in this case, the Catholic Church from the outside, from the secular world. I will tell you this, that the greatest thing that is happening in churches all across America, for sure, is not necessarily the attacks that are coming from the outside. It is what happens to us on the inside. So many times it's easy for us to wage battle with one another on the inside that we do damage and destroy ourselves from the inside. There's really not a lot of use for an attack from the outside. We've done a pretty good job destroying ourselves from the inside. I have spent a lot of time, even in the last couple weeks, thinking about this as it relates to Northwest. You know, it's easy when you're a young church not to have a lot of deals going on as far as people mad at each other and, you know, people not wanting to look at another person, sitting on the other side of the auditorium from them and all that. It's really easy. But the older that a church gets, it's very easy for there to be that underlying current there. Whether it's with one another in the body or whether it's a distrust of leaders who have squandered their leadership and have abused their leadership over the people of God. And we do damage to one another, and as a result of that, we lose our effectiveness. We lose, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we lose our saltiness. We're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out in the street and to be trampled. And I fear that many churches, even in this city today, have gotten to that point. Oh, there may be people that are inside of them, but they are so destroying themselves from the inside that they are of absolutely no benefit to a world who so desperately needs to see the reality of the gospel, of a changed life. And I pray that that will never be true of us here at Northwest, but that is what was going on in the nation of Israel during this time of civil war. During this time, their culture began to decay. Their spiritual heritage began to crumble. And it was literally a time of chaos for God's people. And so God judged Israel when the Assyrians invaded them in 722 B.C. And those ten tribes ceased to exist. The northern kingdom was finished. But some of the people from the north fled to the south to escape the Assyrian control. Now, the land of Judah remained a nation for more than 300 years. However, in 586 B.C., and that's the time that you really need to understand as we go into the book of Nehemiah, Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and literally all of Judah and took the people captive. And that began what is commonly referred to very often as the Babylonian captivity. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn real quickly to the book of 2 Chronicles, I'm sure you had your devotions there just this week. Turn there. One of my favorite books, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, looking at verse 18. This records the end of Judah's history and the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. I'm in verse 11. His God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. Verse 13, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against the Lord God of Israel. Verse 14, furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations and they defiled the house of the Lord which he sanctified in Jerusalem. Verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Verse 16, But they continually mocked the messengers of God. 
They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all back to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. That's why there are walls that need to be rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah. And burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. Do you understand what's happening here? They have destroyed the glorious temple of Solomon. Do you remember when that temple was erected? You've read about it in Scripture. They destroyed not only temple, but all the fortified buildings, including the city wall that protected Jerusalem. Psalm 137 was written during this time, and it describes well the desperation of the people. Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept, and we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they answered, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. In other words, may I not be able to say anything if I don't remember you, if I don't exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20, he adds one final word. Those who had escaped from the sword, those who didn't die during this conflict, were carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons. In other words, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they deported almost everyone from the city and from the entire region. They were literally chained together like slaves, and they were taken to Babylon. Do you know how far that was? If you look at a, at a map of that land during this particular time, it would be approximately 800 miles that those people were taken. It would be like us taking a group of a couple million people, let's say, down from Raleigh down to Miami or up to Chicago. And they walked by foot, literally 800 miles. And when they arrived there, they lived as they had centuries before in Egypt. They lived as slaves to a foreign power. And for some 70 years, Jerusalem was literally a ghost town with the potential to end up like many ancient cities, completely forgotten except to history. And so when the Jews were deported back to Babylon, when they went to Babylon, they began to make homes for themselves there. They settled down and many still followed the God of their fathers. They followed Jehovah, but they did it from Babylon and they had no desire to return to the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it was destroyed. It was desolate. Some of the faithful Jews were raised up to places of prominence in the governments that they were deported to. In fact, you've read about them in Scripture. You remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were asked to bow the knee and they didn't bow the knee and they became leaders. Daniel became a, a governor. You remember Esther who was made a queen and she served in the courts in Persia. You remember Joseph? Most people were doing this. They were simply surviving, just living day by day by day. But God wasn't finished with his people, and he didn't forget them. Notice again in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 20, 
it concludes they were servants until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Verse 22 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now there are a lot of people that ask the question, well, was Cyrus a a follower of Jehovah? Most of my studies would indicate that he was not a follower of Jehovah. He was not sympathetic necessarily to Jehovah God or his people. But remember what scripture says, that the heart of the king is where? It's in the hand of God. And he moves him where he wants him to go. And so look what the king does. It says, Cyrus, king of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed to me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to use this secular king, this king who does not name me as his God. I want you to go and build for me a place in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is then, Cyrus says to his people, among you of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. In other words, you're free to go back and you're free to build this temple to Jehovah God. That's a pretty remarkable thing, that God has used the power of the secular king who is in control of a great amount of the population in the world at that time, he's going to use him in this way. And so after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they were given the opportunity to return to their homeland, to the promised land. This has been referred to some as the second exodus. Remember the first exodus was when the children of Israel left Egypt On their way to the promised land, they disobeyed, and for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. Remember that? Some refer to this as the second exodus. One of some two or three million Jews deported from the land. Two or three million people. And Bible scholars estimate that only about 50,000 of them actually returned to the promised land. About 2%. You can only imagine the condition of the city as it had been unoccupied and desolate for 70 years. You can see its destruction. But they did return under the leadership of three men. This is important as well. The first group left with the man named Zerubbabel as their commanding officer. If Dan and Ariel have another son, that's what they're going to do. They're going to name him Zerubbabel. And that's going to be a great name. I mean, I love the three already, but Zerubbabel, that's going to kind of like be the caption there. The first group left with that king whose name was Zerubbabel as their commanding officer. And then about 80 years later, yes, 80 years later, another group left with Ezra as their leader. It's interesting to note, by the way, for those of you that are Bible students, that up until about 1448, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually together because those stories so closely relate to one another. Ezra returns uh, with people as their leader. And in the days of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple and they laid a spiritual foundation for Israel once again. They rebuilt the temple and they reinstituted a lot of the things from the spiritual climate of the people under Ezra's leadership. But the city and the temple were still without protection for almost 90 years until God led Nehemiah to provide the leadership to rebuild the city walls, literally the infrastructure of the land some 13 years later. Now you have to understand that not having a wall around a city 
was an incredibly dangerous thing. To be unprotected, to be totally exposed, to have nothing between your enemies and your homeland. They were very vulnerable. So they had rebuilt this temple. They had instituted a lot of the, a lot of the practices and, and spiritual reformation was taking place there. But they were still an incredibly vulnerable people because their wall was not built. And it was a very disconcerting thing. It, it would be like if last night your husband would have decided to wash the windows at your house. And so he took the windows out of their jams and you began to wash them and he went, uh-oh, I can't get them back in. We're going to have to wait till Monday to bring out somebody who's a contractor to put the windows back in the house. And so just for a couple days, we're going to have to not have windows in our house. And, and by the way, there's something wrong with the door too. But hey, sleep well tonight. I think everything will be okay. Well, you can imagine, especially tonight last night when it was so cold, <laughs> it would be really bad. But you can imagine how tentative you would be to get in that bed and go to sleep, knowing that you were somewhat vulnerable. There were no windows. There were no doors. That's something like what the nation of Israel found themselves in as the book of Nehemiah begins, 15 years after the book of Ezra ends. So almost 100 years after the first captives come back to the promised land, and some 150 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, after this long time, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still in rubble. I almost said Zerubbabel right there. Before this, uh, citizens of Jerusalem had tried to rebuild the walls several times, but they had failed. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6 through uh, 23. Some 75 years before this, they tried to rebuild the walls, but they were stopped by their enemies. And so no one thought that these obstacles would be overcome and that the walls in the city of Jerusalem, that they would always just be a floundering nation with no protection for city walls. That is, until God began to move in the life of an ordinary man named Nehemiah. All right, you up to speed now? We've taken you through several hundred years and we're all up to speed now at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. You understand why the walls were destroyed. You understand the significance of having those walls rebuilt. But it was going to require leadership. Enter Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. And this is where we will end our study today. The scripture says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. You know, we really don't know much more unfortunately, about Nehemiah than this particular phrase. He was Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. You know Hakaliah, right? No, you don't. You don't know him anymore than you know Zerubbabel. All right? We don't know much about this guy. We don't know hardly anything about Hakaliah. In fact, we only read it here, his name in the Old Testament, and then I think it's chapter 10, we read it again, and only in the context of Hakaliah is basically Nehemiah's father. Which is a pretty cool thing, actually, because we know nothing about the origin or the meaning of his name, but we do know that he was Nehemiah's dad. And by the end of our study, you're going to probably agree that it was a pretty cool thing to be Hakaliah, the dad of Nehemiah. I'm going to tell you this, guys, high school guys, middle school guys, sons in here, the greatest gift that you can ever give your dad is to be a man that loves God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love going to watch my sons to play lacrosse, and I've loved watching them play football and doing all of those things. 
And, and you won't find a bigger football fan than me, but I'm telling you guys, at the end of the day, the greatest thing, if your dad loves Jesus, the greatest thing that you can give him is you can grow up to be a guy, to be a man that loves Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Not how well you catch a football, not how well you can throw a lacrosse ball, not how well you can make a tackle, not how well you can protect a quarterback. It is loving Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I am reminded of this dad, Hakaliah, that we only read two times in Scripture, and yet we look at Hakaliah and we say, wow, what a guy. What a guy that he raised a son like Nehemiah. Even though Nehemiah's pedigree was less than stellar, God would use Nehemiah to prove that he delights in using ordinary people. Now skip down to verse 11. Verse 11 tells us another very important piece of information about Nehemiah, and that was his occupation. It says that he was the cupbearer to the king. Now, that doesn't sound very impressive. In fact, if you're a dad and your son comes home and you say, hey, so what are you going to do with your life? And he says, I think I'll be a cupbearer. If we've never studied that, we may think, well, that means like he, he's going to be a butler, or he's just going to be a maid, or he's just going to wait on tables or do something of, of that sort. But it's important for you to understand that a cupbearer was much more than that. The cupbearer was the one who tasted the wine before the king drank it. He tasted the food before the king ate it. If his dinner was poisoned, if his wine was poisoned, guess who found out first? It was the cupbearer. Now, at first reading, you could read that or you could hear that and you could think, ah, uh, not really interested in that kind of a position. And yet, it was an incredibly important position to attain in this particular culture. Through the practice of this custom, there were incredible relationships that were formed, right? I mean, if I had somebody that I thought was wanting to take my life by poisoning me, I'd take the blue moon cake there. I want to be the first one into that. But if I thought that somebody was trying to take my life, I might choose one of you guys down there. Now, I'd have to look at you really carefully. There's some of you guys, I don't trust you. Zane Hepburn, I might go to Zane and say, I trust Zane. You can be my cupbearer. And so Zane would come up and he'd eat the first piece of cake and I'd, I'd kind of sit back and watch him. Going, he's standing. He still looks like he's living. He's breathing. And I would trust him. And so I would say, cut my piece of cake. So you can imagine that the relationship between the cupbearer and the king was pretty significant, right? The cupbearer had to be somebody that the king trusted, and through that practice, relationships were forged between the king and the cupbearer. The fact that Nehemiah was a Jew who was serving in that capacity with a Gentile king is incredibly significant, and it does speak to Nehemiah's strong, incredible character. And many cupbearers used that position to make a few extra bucks by putting in a good word with the king because of the tight relationship that they had. But that wasn't Nehemiah. So just as God had used Daniel in Babylon and Joseph in Egypt and Esther in Persia, Nehemiah would see God use this influence which he is giving him for a much more admirable purpose than simply just testing the wine and the food of the king. Let me tell you this as we close. Our world needs leaders like Nehemiah like it has never needed before. I'm convinced of that. People who are willing to be used as tools in the hands of the master builder, and not just builder, but rebuilder, Jesus Christ. 
And so I want to give you three things just as we close here of why we need to study the book of Nehemiah. Just three things real quickly. Number one, here's what you're going to find out. This is going to be really cool for most of us, all right? Me included. God can use anybody. God can use anybody. I'm so grateful for that. God can use anybody. And contrary to a world that we live in that says, you got to have this kind of hair, you got to be able to speak this way, you have to be of this height and have these characteristics, God says, I'm not impressed with any of that. If you will allow me to, I can even use you. And I think he proved that all the way through Scripture. Do you remember what he did with the Apostle Paul? That man who murdered Christians? And yet years later, that man would go into those churches and he would minister to those people and he penned a good portion of the New Testament. God can use anybody. It doesn't matter what you've done. You may sit here and you may think, well, I'm, I'm okay to come in this door. But other than that, if these people knew what I've done, if they knew the sins that I've committed, if they really knew how really ungifted I am, they would understand, God's probably not going to use me. I'll just sit here. <laughs> I'm so glad to be able to tell you that God can use anybody. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what sin you've committed. God can use anybody. I love what's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. When the Lord spoke to Samuel and he said this as they were looking for a king. Samuel didn't know what to look for. He's going, he's looking for Mitt Romney's hair. And God's looking down and going, Sam, not that. That's not what I'm interested in. I don't care how wavy his hair is. I don't care how tall he is. I don't care about his, his vocal skills. He said, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected those people. For God sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance and the outward circumstances but God does what? God looks at her heart. And so you might look at me and you would say, he doesn't have wavy hair. He's not really that tall. He's not really, he doesn't have that much persuasive speech. But if my heart is for God, God says, I can use you. God can use anybody. Number two, this is important to remember for a lot of us. God typically uses someone who does not need or want the glory or attention. That's typically the person that he uses. Have you figured that out? God typically uses the person who does not need or want glory or attention. I see this happen all the time on the football field. I am amazed at the prima donnas that walk onto a football field, and they are God's gift to that particular team. And they go through college, and they're big in the NFL draft, and a few years later we go, who? Who? And then you see a little guy like, uh, for all you football fans, like Wes Welker, all right? little short guy, and you look at him and you go, ah, God can't really use him. He can't be used on a football field, and yet he's the guy. He's the man. Doesn't get a lot of attention, doesn't need or want a lot of glory, but he's used. And I believe that's true in a spiritual sense and how God uses people as well. In fact, Paul wrote, as he wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 1, of his first letter, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there aren't many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, 
so that no man may boast before God. God doesn't want you to boast. God doesn't want you to be proud. And if you think you're good, you're probably not. You want to be used here in this church? You want to see God use you in an incredible way? Help people understand that you realize that you're nothing. That you're nothing. Be more concerned about God's glory than you are about your own attention or your glory or the accolades that may come upon you for the gift that you think that you have. Nehemiah shows us in a study of this book that God typically uses somebody who doesn't need or want the glory or attention. And then lastly, and we're going to see this all the way through the book, and I can't wait to share these things with you, beginning next week. In fact, I was going to share three more verses with you just so I could get into this, but I'm just going to give you the principle right now, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more next week, and that is this, that God delights in restoring broken things. God delights in restoring broken things. You know, our world is full of broken things. It's full of broken things. Incredibly broken lives. As I look out over this audience, because I'm involved in a number of your lives and your situations, a number of you, as you look back at me, you know your life represents a broken situation. Whether it's with you, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with a wayward child, whether something has happened in your life that's significant, that's horrific to you, our world is full of broken things. That happened as a result of the fall, as a result of sin entering into the world. And there are a lot of broken and wounded people who have a lot of rubble around them. And what's really cool in the book of Nehemiah as we study this, I think you'll realize that while there are broken, wounded people, people who desperately need to be revived, they need to be restored to usefulness and purpose once again. And if that characterizes your life, then I'll just tell you this, you need to be here the next few months. Because this book will convince you that God can take the broken pieces, the rubble of your life, and he can put it back together and he can do something pretty remarkable, pretty incredible because he delights in restoring broken things. God delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He does. And we're going to find that out. If he can use Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, he can use you, and he can use me. And we're going to see that over the next few months. And I'm excited to be your guide on this journey through the book of Nehemiah. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this book. Thanks for the history lesson. It's good for me to be reminded again how you worked in the life of your people, of Israel. And to be reminded once again of how you're going to continue to work. Even as our last study, we found out that eventually you are going to restore things. You're going to make things right. And God, I pray for the one here this morning that is feeling what I just talked about, that is broken down the person that feels useless, the person who feels like there is rubble all around their lives and they are desperate, they are wounded, they're discouraged. They're really thinking about how they can just kind of make it through life until the end. God, I pray that this study would be the beginning of revival, not just in their lives, but in the lives of groups of people and maybe even in large groups of people in our body as we work through this book. Help us understand that you delight in, in doing incredible, awesome things because you are not only a rebuilder of walls, but you are a rebuilder and a restorer of people's lives.
And I pray we'll see that and be convinced of that and let you do just that in our lives as we study this great book of the Old Testament these next several months. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.